Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hey, good morning. Scott Luton with you here on This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. We're departing from the script again on this episode. You know, traditionally, I pick several stories from uh, business history, especially ones that offer important lessons that we can learn, right, from the annals of business history. But today, we are featuring a great mind and a great friend and, and someone else's point of view for a change as we look to take a look back primarily on 2020 and key business lessons learned. Quick programming note, not enough coffee just yet, uh, Troy. Hey, if you like this conversation, be sure to find This Week in Business History and subscribe for free so you don't miss conversations just like this. Uh, find us across social media. Hey, send your feedback. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Okay, no further ado, I want to introduce our featured guest here today. After graduating with his bachelor's in mechanical engineering from Notre Dame, he got a start at General Electric, iconic business brand. He led a team of over 100 associates. Later, our guest managed a business portfolio valued at over $200 million. Who can relate to that? Uh, while earning his MBA from the University of Georgia's doctorate in business administration from the University of South Florida, our guest has spent 15 to 20 years, I must say, in banking, healthcare, and consulting when not teaching and giving back to the current incredibly sharp future business leaders, uh, global business leaders that are matriculating through the University of Georgia. He's coaching and consulting with organizations looking to drive successful change. So join me in welcoming Dr. Troy Montgomery, faculty member with the Terry College of Business at UGA and managing partner of SCNE Partners. Troy, how you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show, Scott. You bet. You know, it took me several hours all that you've done and try to capture some bullet points there. So I really appreciate you bringing your wealth of knowledge and experience to the show here today. And as I mentioned on the front end, it's really neat. You know, I think we've done probably about 45 or so episodes here at This Week in Business History. And we've had several guest hosts and a guest or two. And I always find it fascinating to kind of bring what they have learned from recent or far past history and, you know, kind of bringing those key takeaways to, you know, where we are today. So I'm, I'm really excited to have you here to share similar key takeaways. Yeah. And Scott, there's plenty of talk about when you think about just the last year alone, and there's plenty of learnings that I think we're going to take away and things that are just going to change from here on out. So plenty to talk about when we talk about history, just being a year ago as well. I'm with you. I'm with you. So, and that really, you know, on that note, and, and before we dive into some of your key thoughts, that's been one of the great silver linings about this age we're living in. You know, uh, whether it is uh, the recognition of all these incredible frontline folks, healthcare, retail, supply chain, you name it, that have that really helped move the whole world forward, or all these lessons learned that whether you're business schools or CEOs or whatever, you're going to be studying this age. I mean, it's already changed 
so many aspects of business that, you know, some are short-term changes, some are permanent changes. So we're going to be studying this this time frame. It's going to offer a lot of learnings to uh, leaders around the world. So on that uh, note, Troy, I really enjoy seeing you in action, especially on the education side. So educate us and our listenership. You know, what are some of the key things that stick out from the year that was 2020? Well, a few things right off the top, and I think that most of us are aware of when we think about supply chain, and that is the trend shifting to a significant reduction in lead time. And so we saw that before the pandemic, right? And there's plenty of survey information out there, but one that I thought was pretty interesting came from the 2018 survey that said about roughly 10 respondents said that speed was the most important thing when it came to shipping and logistics. And then in 2019, and this is before the pandemic, right? It was up to closer to 20%. So that's a significant shift in change. And then we're seeing that even more in 2020. Companies like Peloton. So you talk about the learnings that we have in my undergraduate and graduate supply chain management courses. We look at the book, we look at the text, we look at the theories, but then we look at what's actually going on right now. Mm. Because we don't have all the answers. And one of the many cases that we just recently looked at was uh, Peloton. And I think we're all familiar with the, uh, the fitness company and, and they've got the nice bikes and treads that uh, They're doing pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my, uh, my in-laws uh, recently purchased one. They ordered it back in November and it was just delivered in February. So they're having a huge issue with their supply chain and really manufacturing base being over in Asia and getting the product uh, over here with everything that's gummed up and shipping and the issues that they're seeing. But again, flexibility being one of the most important things to companies and individuals right now. Cost is still the primary focus when we talk about shipping and logistics, but speed is becoming more and more important. So when we look at Peloton, they're spending roughly 10 times more per bike to get it over here than they did a few months ago. Because wow. they're shipping via air carrier. So that's just one example where we're seeing you know, a huge shift due to the pandemic, but also due to the trend of this uh, lead time becoming more and more important. You know, speaking of Peloton and speaking of lessons that will keep teachable moments that will keep giving for years to come, their CEO, I believe it came from the CEO, put out a what's become a famous communication via email, which he went in, he or she went into all of the the different reasons for the challenges, including they mentioned they're spending $100 million in expediting freight. And they have, uh, as you know, they have acquired a manufacturer here in North in, in North Carolina, in the States, to help get around some of these shipping issues. So it really is, <laughs> that memo alone is a, such a great supply chain case study for you know, what 2020 has brought. Yeah, and, and, and your point there with bringing the manufacturing onshore. So they bought a company called Precor for about $420 million that is a, a U.S. manufacturer of fitness equipment. So North Carolina and then Washington is where they plan to start to build some of these treads and bikes. And, and that's just one example, right, Scott? I mean, we're seeing other companies take that same type of strategy where previously they're offshore, they're in Asia, and not just the pandemic, but other pressures related to tariffs and uncertainties when it comes to uh, things like tariff and, and how the new administration is going to, to, to treat the global economy. So we're seeing more of more of that onshore. And, and I was also talking with a flooring company, Mohawk, that's local in Georgia here. And they're talking about some of the same type strategies where they've got, 
you know, global suppliers. How can we get it here quicker? Is the answer to move to different suppliers? These are a lot of the questions that have only been exacerbated by the pandemic in 2020. And it's great to have these cases because students don't have the answers. I don't have the answers, but let's talk through it and let's utilize some of those skill sets that we're learning in supply chain management. I love it. I love it. And two quick points there. Uh, you mentioned Mohawk and, and flooring. Many folks may not know just how much flooring production takes place in the state of Georgia, including Dalton, Georgia, which by many accounts, I believe is still deemed the carpet capital of the world or something like that. So a ton, that's an important industry here in the state of Georgia. And then one other thing, as you mentioned, reshoring, that is important for the years to come, especially in the information age where we all have our favorite devices, you know, just within uh, our reach, you know, semiconductors. You know, I think, you know, that has been offshore for so long. Uh, so many major players have kind of outsourced that. Well, now we're seeing major plants being planned. Of course, it's not going to solve anything overnight because these massive 10 million square feet facilities take a long time to, to set up and get production running. But we're seeing more investment here and, and bringing uh, some of that production here stateside, which may help prevent some of the things we're seeing like right now with automotive production lines being slowed down or, or even stopped due to shortages we're seeing. So I love, uh, hey, we're starting on a strong note, Troy. So you set the bar high already. So what else sticks out? from 2020. Yeah, so so keeping with that type of thought process around lead time, it's kind of a bigger trend than that. It's companies are focused more on responsiveness and being flexible within their supply chain. So there's really two parts to this. One is, is being flexible, and then the second part is trying to reduce risk. And in order to reduce risk, first you gotta identify it. So thinking first on the responsiveness and flexibility. I love to have guest speakers come into the class. Scott was, Gracious enough to come in the class a couple years ago as well. But recently I had Fred Tolbert. He comes in every every year and, and works for uh, Demand Solutions, so a, now, a software company. Troy, you know what his nickname is that was coined by uh, Greg White, right? Probably Mr. Supply Chain. Is, it, is that right? <laughs> Close. There's one of those already in our friend uh, Daniel Stanton. But he is the Fred Tolbert is the Doc Holiday of supply chain because he tells it like it is. So uh, we've had so much fun. He, he is such a, a wonderful person to collaborate with. But I'm, so he came in and spoke to your class as well. Yeah, and one of the things he he talked about towards the end of our time together, and it came up in a question and answer, is about uh, forecasting and how do we forecast with this pandemic, what's gonna happen next? And so he talked more about demand sensing, which is looking at a shorter time frame into the future, as opposed to looking towards next year, we're looking at smaller chunks. And organizations are, are having to do that right now and react much quicker to the pace of change when it comes to demand. Another strategy, which we hear often about, so Georgia Pacific is another company that comes in and, and speaks to my class. And Matthew Lee's a former student at UGA, and Anat Patel, they came in and they talked about skew rationalization. And I think within supply chain, this isn't new, but it's actually happening now. So when I was sitting in meetings at GE a number of years ago, we talked about reducing the amount of SKUs, marketing wanted more SKUs, sales wanted more SKUs, but manufacturing wanted less. And we typically didn't win in those conversations back in those days, but now we're, we're seeing that. And it's, it's critical to ensure that you've got the product in place is that you're focusing on a smaller amount of SKUs and a smaller amount of products. And for Georgia Pacific, when you think about toilet paper and paper towels in particular, 
it's really very similar product in just different packages. So it's not as hard of a conversation to say, well, let's limit the amount of different packages we have. Instead of having all these different 12 roll packs, let's, let's focus on one 12 roll pack or, or just a few of those. So again, all, all these conversations that we're hearing from our leaders in business are coming back to the necessity of having flexibility and responsiveness in their supply chains. You know, when I think of skew rationalization, that's been such a big theme in supply chain, you know, especially in the last uh, 18 months or so. I wish more industries and sectors had a freestyle machine. You know, as someone, I'm a big fan of caffeine-free Diet Cherry Coke, right? One of those very niche products that probably not, I don't know, I haven't met a whole bunch of similar fans, but this freestyle machine that Coke rolled out probably 10 years ago offers just about any drink that you want within their inventory. And it really is so efficient that it doesn't require, to your point, packaging or you know stocking all these different raw materials. It really offers all these different SKUs in a very efficient and lean way. Uh, now, don't we all, don't we wish that so much else was it that easy, right? It, uh, it's not, but when it comes to SKU rationalization and what we've seen, global supply chains really limit all these options so they can protect the supply in their core offerings. It really is, it's been a fascinating study. And to your point, I'm sure plenty of internal wrangling between sales and operations around which SKUs and, and which ones survive and which ones uh, are shelved for a little while. Yeah, and, it, well, and that's a, a really good strategy. And another strategy, which is right along that same line, is called postponement, which is not assembling, not pulling together the final product, just like your drink example, until the last minute. And that enables you to offer a significant amount of variation and skew and customization. And a good example that I often share is uh, with paint. So uh, I love your example, and I'm probably gonna steal that one and start sharing uh, in line with, with paint. But if you go to Home Depot or Lowe's, it's just white paint. And, uh, and when you find the color that you want, they mix it right there. So they're not having to hold significant amount of inventory, they're just having to hold the inventory of white paint. But it's that same approach of waiting to the last minute to give the customer the customization that they uh, that they desire. I love that. It, you know, one of the things that comes across that uh, it's been a little while since we sat down and caught up with each other, but I'm remi instantly reminded as you share your perspective is how lucky your students are because clearly you're someone that scours what's taking place in the real world right now, you know, today, and bring that into the classroom, even when it's problems that are still being worked out where there is no obvious answers, and even the experts have no answer. And then and then facilitating the discussion with, with students that may have the answers. I mean, that's the kind of, you know, I think of Dan Barry, who I learned from at the University of South Carolina. He was a furniture entrepreneur with three stores that, that where he made his living did, and did well. And then he, he gave back as an adjunct professor and he brought all what's going, what's really taking place right into the classroom and, and let us talk and, and work it through even when there were no obvious answers. Those are the folks that you want to learn from. And, and Troy, you strike me as, as someone in the vein of Dan Barry. Well, and, and I'm, I'm glad that you said this. So I appreciate that because one of my goals as an educator is to, to bring the stories from my war stories, from my experience, and then also just like you said, what's actually going on. I was educated at the University of South Florida where I pursued my doctorate. And Dr. Grandin Gill, Harvard-trained, brilliant guy, one of the foremost leaders when it comes to writing business cases, and I've had the opportunity to train under him and, and write a business case and a couple business cases. And one of the things that we talk about when you're writing a business case, so think about the Harvard Business Review cases maybe you had as an undergrad or in a master's program where there's a protagonist and they're faced with some business problem. 
and they don't give you the answer at the end. It's your chance to come up with a solution. And typically there's no one right answer. There's multiple right answers, which is the case with business. So the key there is when you're writing a business case, the best business cases to write up don't have the answers yet. Mm. So we often think that, you know, whoever wrote the business case for Amazon or Home Depot or whatever it may be had the answer before they wrote it up. But that's not true. The best business cases that you can write up don't have the answer yet because you end it with a protagonist having to go to a meeting and make a decision or having to come up with a report and do some analysis and come up with the right solution. So I say all that because the best cases to cover in class are the ones that are going on right now where you have to think through and there's not a clear answer of what what the uh, outcome's gonna look like. Love it, I love that. And, and of course, we haven't talk, spoken yet about your consulting uh, work that you do. Uh, we'll touch on that here towards the end. But one last thought, I wanna make sure we, uh, before we move on to some uh, business leader that you admire and have learned from, you know, Jeff Bezos famously went in the earliest years of Amazon, the first couple of years, went and presented to a, an Ivy League graduate class. And I can't remember which one it was. I, it was on one of our earlier episodes. And one of the students, after he let them, as he kind of walked them through the model and this, that, and the other, it said, <laughs> I'm a paraphrase, you're a nice guy and all, but this isn't going to work. Folks are going to use Barnes and Noble. Yeah. And it's just that, it's that moment. And look, uh, we've all been there. I, I, I cringe at some of the things I've shared just in the last probably couple of weeks. But it's it's those anecdotes make history and business history so fascinating because to your point, you just never know. And even when you think you've got the answer and you think you've got it pegged, what's right around the corner is going to surprise you. So, so true. All right. So so looking back, you know, kind of first part of this interview is looking back at 2020. What else before we move on to um, some leadership lessons learned? What else sticks out, Troy? The only other one that I'll share is that even coming out of this pandemic, there's a lot of things that are going to change, but then there's there's a lot of things that aren't going to change. And that is customers are still going to demand to get their product as, as soon as you, possible. And customers aren't going to want to pay price increases for the additional costs that we incur as an organization within our supply chain. So that just means we're going to have to become even more innovative on how we deliver products, how we produce products, customer service, which gets into uh, a little bit of the consulting side. So through UGA and the executive education program, we've helped develop continuous improvement uh, education through the yellow belt and green belt, so Lean Six Sigma. But whether it's Lean Six Sigma or other continuous improvement types of tools and techniques, these are going to become more and more important to organizations because of that fact that customers aren't going to be willing to pay you know, a significant amount of increase, even though we know on the back end, Peloton's a good example there. We're having to get those products as quick as possible to, to customers and we're having to pay for that. Excellent point. And part of what you were sharing there makes makes me immediately think of customer experience, right? That this CX we've seen really rise in terms of importance and priority and, and, and how many times you hear it. It's one of those phrases it's kind of lean 25 years ago, maybe, you know, where all of a sudden it became the word everyone was talking about and, and a methodology everyone was talking about CX. I mean, we've got user experience and employee experience. All those are really important. And, and now more and more supply chain and business leaders are talking about customer experience to your point, focused on what, what they want, but also how they get it, what the process is, what the experience is, obviously, and how we can focus all aspects of business on optimizing that. And so it's fascinating to see where we are and, and, and what that, that will lead to. Yeah, and when you say see where we are, there's an important fundamental concept that any consultant engagement or any training that I do 
includes, and that is looking at the current state. And so while a lot of people might kind of glance over this fact, drawing out a simple or detailed process map is extremely important. And in CX, we start to call it journey mapping, looking at the customer and all the experiences that they have from start to finish. When we think about our supply chain, it's more important than ever to identify risks within your supply chain. And that starts with actually mapping it out. And you think about some of these large organizations and how many suppliers that they have, how many products they have, and how complex their supply chain is, it's a significant undertaking just to map it out. Mm -hmm. Then when you map it out, you start to categorize your risk and identify points where we might need some help here, or we might need to hold a little bit more inventory in this particular instance. But I, I can't stress that enough, whether it's in looking at customer experience, risk within your supply chain, or just changing an IT system, understanding the current state uh, is an extremely important step before you move into solutioning and changing anything. I'm so glad you shared that. And it is such an important point. I think you and I both have been in plenty of organizations, especially when you bring in as, as your process mapping, value stream mapping, journey mapping, I think you, you mentioned, as you bring in a cross-functional team, it amazes me just how often this office has no idea what this office is doing and why, right? And, and, and so immediately you uncover all of these eureka moments and these learnings that provide for almost instantaneous, I mean, some of, the, some of the things provide for very simple changes that improve everyone's experience. So it really is important, that current state, understanding that and, and, and getting beyond the assumptions that so many people, I've certainly made it myself, that we make around how things currently work. So that is worth the price of admission, Dr. Troy Montgomery. Okay, so I bet you and I could talk for several more hours about 2020 and, and all the business takeaways. There's so many. We're just scratching the surface. But for the sake of time, I'm really interested about this ne next segment because I uncovered something in the pre-show that I had didn't, didn't glean from our earlier conversations. So let's talk about a business leader in particular that you draw inspiration from. Yeah, and, and so this is one that most of the listeners probably aren't going to be familiar with, but, uh, but they probably know somebody that fits this mold. And so that was my mother. She actually was a small business owner throughout my childhood, which allowed so much flexibility. But at the time, you know, I never really appreciated what she had accomplished. So she had a, uh, a consignment shop and had it for probably about 20 years before she ended up selling it right on the onset of eBay. And, and she recognized that this probably wasn't going to be the best business to be in at that time. And what, uh, what was she, your mother's name, by the way? It's Judy Montgomery. Judy Montgomery, okay. Yeah, so we, uh, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and that's where, uh, that's where they still are. But my mother was a, a school teacher, so she was an undergrad and master's in education and taught uh, in primary school up until I was, gosh, probably four or five years old, so it was before I started in school, that um, she started to test out a, a business idea, and that was uh, used cribs. So in our basement, she would purchase, maybe at yard sales or through people that she knew, some uh, used cribs, and she, she thought there was a market for this. So this is still while she was teaching. And she would have about four or so cribs in the basement and would put some ads out in the local newspaper. And she'd get uh, a good amount of calls, so that started to, uh, as she continued to test that idea, because we talk about this kind of lean startup approach within organizations and innovative approach and fail fast. And I realized, you know, years after living through that, that that's what she was doing. She was testing the market and, and identifying that, hey, yeah, there's a market for uh, used cribs in this example. 
Then she partnered with a company uh, right across the river in Indiana, about 45 minutes away, that was a manufacturer of cribs. So she partnered with them, was able to drive over and bring and have at least one or two new cribs in the basement as well. So this started to grow, and then eventually she leased out some space and uh, was focused on baby furniture. But she needed something more to fill that space, so she started to include clothing, both baby and, and, and children clothing. And she set up uh, a consignment store. And so she realized when she opened the store that it was really the clothing, not just the, the furniture that was driving mm. sales. And over time, that became a very successful business. And a couple things that I, I really draw from that is, is uh, being in supply chain now, just the significance of setting up the systems in place to bring in new product and then also get rid of inventory that's been sitting for a while. So she came up with a, a pretty good approach where she would sign a contract with individuals that would bring clothing in. And uh, after a certain amount of days, a couple months, whatever it may be, she gave the opportunity for them to come pick it up or then it would go to some different charitable organizations that they partner with. So it became really a pillar of the community as well. So not only was it a successful business, but it was also you know, a huge help to mothers who maybe couldn't afford you know, going through the new clothes every few days and they could make some money as they bring back the clothes that, uh, that were gently used into the store. And then for me growing up, you know, I'd see her working in the afternoons and evenings, tagging clothes, and then working through the new inventory system. So this is in the you know, late 80s, early 90s that we're talking about. And she was on the front of having an inventory management system uh, in a consignment shop. She had her computer in the store and then a computer at home and would bring those old floppy disks home uh, to, to back up the information on the computer at home. So I think you know, uh, a, a number of your listeners can probably relate to the systems that were in place and utilizing probably not the most efficient tools, but at the time they were you know, efficient, but then also just allowing the flexibility to serve the community as well as you know, still, be, uh, still be mom and be at home uh, with, with me and my sister as we continue to grow up. I love that for so many different reasons. Uh, uh, of course, as an entrepreneur, it hits me right in, in, in the heart, right? Because can, can, many of us can relate to that journey. But the intense focus on all the re's that's, that's so important these days, right? Remanufacturing, recycling, reusing. There, there's only probably a handful, as you described that time period, the eight, late 80s and early 90s. Clearly, there wasn't enough focus and smart people doing things in that regard during that time frame, which which is is sad. And that's kind of part of the reason where we are today, right? For so many, you know, in, in so many different aspects of, of trying to really reach that circular economy. But to hear a trailblazer like your mother, Judy Montgomery, right. to build a business model around that, while while also to your point, not only embracing those elements, but helping others and the folks that couldn't afford the new stuff. I mean, at, we're both fathers. And that new stuff is expensive. Those baby manufacturers and, and clothing manufacturers are very proud of their stuff, and they should be. But uh, what a wonderful story and champion for many things that Judy Montgomery has been. So, uh, And I'm, I know we're just scratching the surface probably on, on a lot of things and leadership lessons and business lessons you learned from your mother. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, Growing up, as seeing the business continue to grow was was uh, eye opening as well. So she never had a, a significant amount of employees, but was managing you know four or five employees, and uh, and most of those employees were women and mothers as well. 
Mm. So seeing her flexibility in working with her uh, her team was extremely important, and something that I, that I always remember. If there was a ball game or uh, something came up for some of her employees, she was the first one to say, "All right, well, I'm going to run into the store and take over the shift." And, and so it was amazing to to see that and the relationships that she built, you know, w- with her team as well. Love that uh, flexibility certainly has been. Uh a greater point of emphasis in 2020, which is neat. But it's all, you know, the savviest leaders have always appreciated and exhibited and put an emphasis on the value of flexibility for their team members, you know, whether it's going back to the industrial age, you know, to, uh, to where we are today and, of course, moving forward. So I, I love so many different aspects of uh, of the story you're sharing about your mother's business. So we'll have to have her on down the road. Yeah, and one, one more other thought on that is just the, the timing and the knowledge on when to exit the business. And uh, and she ended up selling the, the business, like I said, right around the onset of internet companies like eBay and, and other companies that were doing something similar to larger uh, markets. So um, she had the wherewithal and the business knowledge to say, you know what, this is not probably not the right time for her to dig into you know uh, an online retailer and she wasn't willing to take the business that way so it was time for her to exit and she acknowledged that recognized that and thought there might be a, a better opportunity for another owner to come in and, and take over love that we got to pick our spots yeah. these days right or the, or those days any <laughs> any days you got to pick your spots all right so we've kind of ventured you know first two topics here we talked about 2020 and some of your key takeaways from a business standpoint that will probably be around for a long time in terms of lessons learned. We talked about Judy Montgomery, some of the lessons learned there from what a, a wonderful entrepreneurial story. There's so much there. We'll have to have our own. Now let's arrive as we start to wrap. Let's talk about what you're doing now. Let's do that twofold. I love how you've already shared some of your MO when it comes to uh, educating and, and facilitating learning for your students. So you know, any, any additional thoughts there in terms of what's next um, as we, I guess we're halfway through the current semester. I'm not even sure how, how classes work these days. So speak to that if you would. And then also I want to talk a little bit more about how you're consulting organizations and helping them get through some, some tough to manage change. Yeah. So regarding uh, University of Georgia and Terry College of Business, we, we've got an excellent program in the management department with the supply chain and operations emphasis. So we've got about 125 top-notch students that are coming through that program where they study some of the fundamentals related to supply chain, supply chain analytics, operations, project management. But more importantly for these students, they're, they're also management majors. So they have a really good kind of cross-functional view of, of how to run, how to be a leader, you know, within uh, a business. So yeah, we're about halfway through the semester and this semester has been odd as well as the last semester with a lot of online education. But again, I think this is going to be a shift within our, our higher education in providing uh, more flexibility. I know for me personally, it's, it's pushed me to have more variety in lectures, more variety in guest speakers coming in, variety of how the message is delivered, whether it's video or in person or online. Um, so it's, I think it's pushed me and probably most educators to think outside of the box. And when we come out of this pandemic on the other side, we're going to have a lot more tools and techniques to try to keep our students engaged. So yeah, they, excellent. Point. Uh, also within uh, the University of Georgia, We've got a really strong executive education program where I partner with, um, this is also my business partner in my consulting firm, SCE, Dr. Don Addison. 
So we partner together in delivering a lot of the same concepts to our students, both undergraduate and graduate, but more to the executive leaders, mid-level managers, and individuals that are out there uh, fighting the good fight right now. Don, like myself, has a number of years of practical experience. He was a senior level executive at Bank of America for about 20 or 30 years, and then he retired and came on within the Institute of Leadership Advancement at UGA. So both Don and I provide an, an academic view, but also a practical view, having a significant amount of experience. So through the uh, University of Georgia Executive Education Program, we've partnered to pull together a number of different opportunities, including leading change, which there's no shortage of change out there, project right. management, and then some of the continuous improvement Lean Six Sigma skill sets that we previously mentioned. So we're staying pretty busy when it comes to educating the undergraduate, graduate students, and then also continuing to partner and work with organizations through executive education at UGA. Uh, there's so much more there, but uh, uh, from a timing standpoint, we will start to wrap now. I really I like how you, you share. And, and, and again, I, I hate to keep going back to the classroom, but between communicating and, and where you put your focus and your points of, of emphasis and your overall MO, I bet, you know, just like I'll talk about Dan Barry some well, I'm not going to, I'm 30 years ago, I guess. I bet students are going to be talking about Dr. Troy Montgomery in, in a very similar fashion. That and business leaders find your consulting journey to be fascinating as well. So a pleasure to sit down with you once again. It's been too long. Let's do it again. Uh, maybe one of these next go rounds will include some of the, the incredibly bright folks that you, you have the chance to um, to educate, but also probably learn from yourself. Yes, right? absolutely, Scott. I, I appreciate you having me on and, uh, Look forward to connecting with anybody out there via LinkedIn or, or, or visit our, our website, www.scnepartners.com. Be happy to connect with individuals out there. Wonderful. And we'll make sure that makes it into the show notes. We're after one click here as we try to, our listener experience, LX. <laughs> Uh, we try to make sure it's as easy as possible for folks to connect with our guests and, and these and these remarkable journeys their own. So, Dr. Troy Montgomery, a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, again, faculty member with the Terry College of Business at UGA and managing partner of SC&E Partners. Thanks, Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Scott. You bet. So, folks, if hopefully you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. It was kind of wide-ranging, but there's so much to talk about. There's so many. It's a fascinating time to be not just in global supply chain, but global business. And as as Troy mentioned, leading through change. There's no shortage of it out there. So, if you enjoyed this as much as I have, be sure to check out This Week in Business History. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. We offer a money-back guarantee. If you don't like the conversation, hey, we'll give you your money back. But on a serious note, uh, thanks so much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast series. Hey, on behalf of our entire team here at This Week in Business History and Supply Chain Now, Scott Luton signing off for now. Hey, do good. Give forward. Be the change that's needed. Be just like Judy Montgomery. And on that note, we'll see you next time here on This Week in Business History. Thanks, everybody.